Uh, hello and welcome everybody uh, to this LSE online LSE public event. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. Uh, this is an event organized by the Hellenic Observatory and the National Bank of Greece. And it is, it is part of the Hellenic Observatory's Athens Lecture Series and the LSE public events uh, program. Uh, we're meeting today to uh, discuss uh, issues that relate to uh, the rise of populism, but also economic decline inequality uh, in the US, but also uh, more generally, generally ac across the, the globe. Our title, the title for our event is Golfing with Trump, Economic Decline, Inequality and the Rise of Populism in the US. Um, the uh, event will have a form of a presentation by, by our keynote speaker, Professor Andres Rodriguez-Pose, and then we have uh, two distinguished discussants who will follow the presentation before we open to questions uh, and uh, uh, questions and answers with you in the audience. I'll give a few details about how the event will uh, uh, play out, but first let me introduce uh, our speakers. Our keynote speaker, Professor Andres Rodriguez-Pose, is Professor of Economic Geography here at the London School of Economics. He has a long track record of research on uh, a range of issues in regional uh, analysis, regional growth and disparities, fiscal and political decentralization, on regional innovation, development, uh, policies, development strategies. Uh, but uh, more recently, he has been contributing very centrally on the debates about uh, the role of institutions for economic development, uh, as well as uh, on the debate about the rise of populism and events that happen across the globe. Uh, he is also the new director here at LSE at the Canada Blunt uh, Center. And among his many accolades, uh, uh, he includes the uh, 2018 um, Research uh, Regional Science Award by the European Regional Science Association, one of the highest awards in the field uh, worldwide. He is uh, advisor to various international organizations, including the European Commission, the World Bank, and the European Investment Bank, uh, as well as uh, uh, different United Nations uh, agencies, including the ILO and the FAO. Uh, he's going to talk to us, as I said, on the on the topic, and then he will be followed by our two uh, discussions. The first of our discussions is uh, Professor Dimitris Keridis, who is a member of the Greek Parliament, representing the Athens North uh, for the center-right party of New Democracy. He is a professor of international politics at Panion University in Athens and the founding director of the Navarino Network in Thessaloniki. Uh, he has taught in many universities in Greece as well as internationally, and he's a regular TV political commentator. He has published extensively in international politics, including books uh, on nationalism and ethnic conflict, US foreign policy, and others. Our second discussant is uh, Professor Antigone Liberaki, a professor of economics at Pandion University of Social and Political Sciences in Athens. Uh, Professor Liberaki was educated in Athens University uh, and at the Institute of Development Studies at Sussex University, and she has taught uh, um, also abroad at City University of New York and in, in, and in Paris as well. Her research interests uh, have focused on the interplay between social structures and economic performance, and she has published extensively and uh, participated in civil society initiatives related to women's rights, migration and development. Um, before I pass on the floor to our speakers, just a couple of organizational stuff. For those of you using the uh, Twitter, uh, the hashtag for today's event is uh, hashtag LSETrump, one word. I should also mention that the event, uh, the online event is being recorded and will be made available if everything works, hopefully as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties uh, uh, with the system. As I said, after the presentations and the discussions, uh, there will be a chance for you to put uh, questions. To submit your questions, uh, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. 
questions will be submitted to myself and I will pose, uh, I will try to gather as many questions and pose them to the speakers uh, for, for the discussion. For those watching the event live on Facebook, please add them uh, as comments on, on your Facebook uh, uh, page. I will now, uh, uh, I will let you know when I open the floor to, for questions and answers, but let me now move uh, to our keynote speaker, Andres Rodriguez-Prosé. The floor is yours for your presentation. Thank you very much, Vasilis. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Okay, so thank you very much to the Hellenic Observatory and to the National Bank of Greece to have me here in a virtual form. It would have been nice to be live in Athens or in London, but uh, unfortunately we all have to be uh, on computer screens. Uh, and what I'm going to try to talk to, do, uh, to you today is about uh, a topic that has become very topical. We are in an election period uh, within uh, now a month. Uh, we'll have either a confirmed president or a new president of the United States. And the question here is, we have a very unusual president. We have a president that is like no other before, uh, one that has uh, thrives in uh, a rhetoric that is very close to that of the anti-system and populist uh, type of approach that has been uh, emerging in many parts of the world and especially in the developed world over the last uh, few years. And what I'm going to try to explain is to what extent was his election rooted in long-term economic and social issues within the United States? To what extent was it linked to the rise of inequality and levels of inequality? And to what extent was it uh, linked to factors like a dwindling social capital, as has been highlighted in the past, and how those factors have been long-lasting factors and may, to a large, in a certain, in a certain way, influence the current election that is underway. So let me start by uh, the prediction that was made by one of our colleagues in the United States, one of our most prestigious uh, uh, social science college uh, colleagues, uh, Robert Putnam, in what is probably one of the seminal books in social sciences uh, in this 21st century. In 2000, Robert Putnam published uh, Bowling Alone. And in this book, Bowling Alone, uh, he predicted to a certain extent a decline of American power, a decline of the American economy, but especially a decline of democracy linked to one fundamental factor, and that was that Americans were increasingly not bowling with friends in clubs, but they were bowling alone. And bowling alone was taken as a metaphor for a decline in civic engagement and political participation and all other forms of social capital that had been the bulwark of American prosperity since almost independence, but had witnessed a turning point since the mid 1960s. And this wane in engagement in bowling clubs was just a metaphor for a decline in all sorts of other forms of civic engagement and social trust, like political participation, voter turnout, newspaper readership, letter writing, union membership, church attendance, club meetings, volunteering, or any other sort of this type of dominating civic engagement. This coincided with another important factor, which was a rise in inequality. Uh, the United States within uh, the developed world is a country that has relatively limited levels of territorial inequality, but has high levels of interpersonal inequality. 
But the level of interpersonal inequality had been declining in the US, especially since the end of the Second World War until the late 1960s, early 1970s. However, since the late 1960s, the trend changed and there was an increasing polarization with a few uh, receiving the lion's share of the returns of economic activity, whereas a large percentage or ever larger percentage of Americans losing out. And when you combine rising interpersonal inequality with declining social capital, that was for uh, Putnam, the biggest threat to democracy. He says that in his book on page 28, that our economy, our democracy, and even our health and happiness depend on adequate stocks of social capital. And those were declining together with uh, inequality. What I'm going to be arguing here today is that, yes, uh, there was probably a threat looming in the horizon already in 2000 to US democratic health. And that maybe social capital and uh, interpersonal inequality played a part. But what I'm going to argue is that there was a third factor that came was under the radar that was not noticed by Robert Putnam and has been basically unnoticed by the majority of social science uh, scientists in the US and elsewhere, which has been linked to a long-term, very prolonged economic and demographic decline of American towns and rural areas and the related rise in territorial inequality. And that this combination together with remnants of the strong social capital, not weaker social capital as Putnam highlighted, has led to a geography of discontent as has been highlighted by Phil McCann, especially for the case, case of Europe, but to a politics of resentment that we probably saw uh, to a large extent on the debate uh, yesterday, uh, as highlighted by Kathy Kramer, that has led to a revenge of these places that increasingly are regarded as not to matter in a more globalized, integrated, uh, contemporary uh, uh, world. So let me start by highlighting, has the prediction by uh, Robert Putnam that American democracy was in jeopardy being fulfilled. And of course, this would depend to a large extent on your political views. But many would argue that uh, the November 2016 election of Donald Trump as president of the United States represented that threat to democracy. Donald Trump was an outsider with a clear populist sort of rhetoric that first managed to uh, get elected in the primaries of the Republican Party against the mainstream Republican candidates uh, by beating every single one of them. And then against all odds, uh, won uh, the election in November 2016 and became president. And he mainly won the election by, you can take a look at the map over here, by getting a massive swing of votes, not getting the electoral vote, uh, but getting uh, uh, the actual vote in specific states that swung. And those states are states like Wisconsin, states like uh, Michigan, Ohio, or Pennsylvania, that uh, are long-term declining states 
And those were the ones that gave Donald Trump uh, the presidency. The question is why? Why did it happen? And what I'm going to try to argue that there are several factors. Let's go first to the factors that were highlighted by Robert Putnam. The first one is this erosion of social capital, this dwindling social capital that uh, in fact was taking place for a long time under the radar and that was undermining this declining social capital, the performance of democratic institutions in uh, the US. The idea that lower trust, uh, lower connectedness and lower civic enge engagement were actually knowing slowly the pillars of American democracy. The second, and we, what we can see is we, if we map this type of social uh, capital highlighted by Putnam in the US, and this is the map of social capital in 2014, what we see here is uh, that uh, there are parts of the US with relatively low levels of social capital. This is, for example, the case of most of the South, uh, states like Kentucky or Tennessee with very low levels of social capital, but also across the Southwest of the United States in uh, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, or Nevada or Southern California where social capital is notoriously low. Together with the big cities, so you can see in uh, around New York or in many parts of the megalopolis, towards Washington, but also Los Angeles, where social capital is lower than in the rest of the country, and a high concentration basically in the Great Plains, uh, all the way from northern Texas to the Dakotas, but also in the mountain states from Wyoming to Montana and Idaho. The second factor would be interpersonal inequality and the polarization of American society that has been a constant, not just in the US, but has been a constant as highlighted by many economists and other social scientists like Rash Chetty, uh, uh, Thomas Piketty, uh, Ranko Milanovic, Danny Dorling, uh, for example, in uh, parts of the US, but also most of Europe and most of the developed world, that has facilitated in a certain way or created an economic insecurity, a large army of individuals that have been left behind, that are much more vulnerable, and that are more likely to fall uh, into the net of populist uh, candidates. These people left behind, these people at risk of falling into po poverty have in many numbers or have been considered to be, when you look at the literature by uh, political scientists, uh, the key drivers of the rise of anti-system uh, candidates that uh, those that reject the status quo and are actually uh, eroding these uh, democratic institutions. Um, if we take a look at the situation of interpersonal inequality in the US, what we see is that there are parts of the US that are highly unequal. Again, the cities, you can see here in New York, you can see Los Angeles, you can see the Bay Area with high levels of inequality, but also most of the South of the US and their relatively low levels of interpersonal inequality, especially in the Midwest and around the Great Lakes, but also in some of the mountain uh, states. And the final factor, uh, or well, before I get to the final factor, is the third factor is that there would be a combination of both. That when you have, on the one hand, low uh, social capital and high inequality, you are creating, according to Putnam, the conditions for this threat to American democracy. The third fact factor is uh, that I think has been uh, somewhat neglected, but is as important, if not, if not more important, is that 
Well, Putnam's work is about all sorts of declines, from decline in social capital and civic engagement and political uh, participation of voter turnout. One decline that has been very important, that has inspired songwriters and writers and poets for quite a few decades now, but uh, unfortunately has not been as inspiring for uh, scientists, is that of Midtown and rural America. This idea that what you have is the communities that built America, that was uh, built to a large extent on places like uh, Youngstown, Ohio, Allentown, Pennsylvania, uh, areas that had a strong uh, people rooted in the community that were dynamic, that were industrial uh, centers in the Industrial Re Revolution, have been losing population, they have been losing uh, uh, wealth and they have been losing employment for quite a few decades and this type of decline is leading to a situation in which these places that increasingly count for less and less in economic terms but also in social terms in the construct of uh, this idea of the United States are reacting and they are reacting at the moment at the ballot box and this is something that is not just exclusive to the US is something that has been studied in, in the UK in great detail by Phil McCann uh, the rise of polarization and the emergence of the shift of the red wall from uh, labor to the conservatives across the whole of Europe, uh, in the north of France, in uh, southern Belgium, in declining towns in, in northern Italy, uh, by in work done by Louis Dijkstra and myself, or in the US, in work done mainly by uh, Katie uh, Kramer at the University of Wisconsin, and more recently last year by Jonathan uh, Robin at Stanford. And if you take it, I will take a, a proxy. This is the uh, decline or employment change. Uh, between 1980 and 2016, what we see is that there are places in the US that have generated significant amounts of new employment, mostly uh, along the East Coast. You can see the Northeast uh, Corridor, but also the West Coast and many areas in the center of the US, especially outside or the areas closest or the cities closest to the Great Lakes, but the Great Plains, for example, then access that goes all the way from North Dakota to the Mexican border, but also many parts of uh, the Rust Belt and the South, where the number of jobs being generated is, is very low. So the question here is, well, how has this long-term decline in employment, but not just in employment, in population, in wages and in earnings affected? Uh, the reaction of individuals that are losing out at the ballot box and how can they have turn or why would they then turn to a candidate which has been an outsider uh, like Donald Trump as they did in 2016. And what I'm going to argue is that this is the decline in social capital and the rise in interpersonal inequality may matter, but they may matter less. That, uh, that it would be mainly long-term decline and long-term decline uh, associated to relatively strong social capital, especially in areas where we still have got this strong social identities and social consciousness and in where the loss of one individual is still very much regarded as the loss for the rest of the community. Uh, those would be the places that have driven 
the rise of anti-system voting in, in America, the places that would have uh, elected Donald Trump as president. And this would not have had happened in places where you have high inequality but weak social uh, uh, ties. For example, the big cities. The big cities are the places with the highest interpersonal inequality, where you have the weakest social capital. But, for example, the richest people in living in um, uh, the west suburbs of Philadelphia, for example, would actually vote or vote had, would have voted in the same way for Hillary Clinton as the people living in the ghettos of northern Philadelphia, which are among the poorest of the poor in the United States. So what I'm trying to is look into these factors and try to explain how did it happen and what is the role of all these uh, factors put together. And uh, there's a mathematical model. I'm going to try to summarize it here in a, in a simple, iconic way. Uh, what we're trying to measure, and I say we, because this is work that I do with Neil uh, Lee and uh, Cornelius Lip, we explain what we call the Trump margin. So is the excess of vote or the uh, sway to Donald Trump in 2016 relative to the votes cast to the previous uh, Republican uh, candidate in 2012, Mitt Romney, who was a mainstream uh, Republican candidate uh, cast in the traditional way of most Republican candidates in the past. And uh, we argue that uh, the Trump margin might be a factor of, on the one hand, levels of social capital that we'll have at uh, community level in the US, the analysis done at county level for more than 3000 counties, the levels of inequality in the county or the levels of long-term economic and demographic decline over time, controlling for the decline between 1970 and 2016. And we do this by decade, we do this between 1970 and 2016, the year of the election, 1980 and 2016, 1990 and so on, decade by decade. And we control for a number of other factors that are uh, supposed to play a role in the election of Donald Trump. The level of wealth of the county, proxied by its GDP per capita, uh, the race component, we control for the white population, but also the black population in the analysis, uh, the, the white non-Hispanic population as well, the level of education of the population, always highlighted as a key factor in the switch to a populist vote, and a number of uh, factors, the error term, that are might have a, a, an influence uh, in, in the whole uh, process. What I'm going to show you is that, uh, in principle, no of this single factors, the three factors that we consider of interest, uh, so change in employment, which is our first proxy for uh, economic change over time, levels of inequality or levels of social capital is strongly connected in any way with the Trump margin. That not a single of these factors is the only driver or the main driver of the Trump vote. There's a str slightly stronger connection of employment change with Trump margin. So the places that have seen a lower uh, a higher level of employment uh, growth, those uh, around here, have tended to vote less for Trump than they actually voted for uh, Mitt Romney in 2012. But in general, the relationship is very weak. And the relationship between the three variables of interest, inequality, employment change, 
or economic change in general, and social capital is also very weak. So there's not that you can have a strong correlation and all these factors happen, happen in just one place and not in others. So this is the first thing that we need to take into account. What happens when we put all the factors together and we do the analysis and the regression analysis and we get the results? So what I'm going to show, I'm not going to show tables. I just want to highlight, there's a paper for all of you that are interested in these topics. You can take a look. If you want to know the analysis in detail, you can get it there. What I'm going to try to summarize is that there's a quite a lot of data analysis behind. The results are very robust. And what I'm going to try is to just summarize the results very quickly in, a, in an iconic way. So what determines the Trump margin once we control for everything? First, I want to say that the factors that we introduce as control uh, matter in the way we're expected to matter. Places with a higher density, uh, mainly the cities, tend to vote to, for, to a much lower extent for Trump than they did for Mitt Romney in 2012. So uh, the Trump vote increases, or the Trump margin, to be more exact, increases as you get away from the most dense places, as you get away from cities into the suburbs and into the rural areas, which is something that has been highlighted very, very clearly by Jonathan Warden. Um, race matters, uh, where you have a majority of um, white population, where you have, uh, there would be a higher Trump margin if you have a, a large percentage of majority uh, minority, especially if you have a large percentage of black population, what you'll have is that uh, the share of the Trump margin is reduced uh, significantly in that, those areas. And uh, what we find is first that employment decline over since 1980, this is the uh, basic model, since 1980 until 2016 is a key factor in determining the Trump margin. Then we also find that social capital matters, but I put the bowling upside down in case you have noticed, because it's not in the way that uh, Robert Putnam expected, it's the opposite way. Stronger social capital in declining areas is a fundamental driver of uh, the Trump margin. By contrast, we find virtually no relationship between greater inequality and the Trump margin. And if anything, there's a positive relation, uh, rela uh, negative relationship. Uh, places with uh, greater inequality actually tend to vote less or have a less uh, Trump margin. So vote less for Trump than they did uh, for Romney. How about different types of decline? Because at the moment we have concentrated just on one, which is employment decline, but there might be other types of decline that are uh, relevant for this reaction of the ballot box and this shift of votes, this swing of votes to Donald Trump. And what we find is that it's not just employment change, but also demographic decline, population loss is a big driver of the Trump margin. Places that have lost employment, places that have lost population, where communities remain relatively strong are the ones that gave Trump the presidency. Places by contrast, where you see significant decline in wages or in earnings are not connected in any way to the uh, Trump margin. So overall, what we find is that, and in contrast to what others uh, and myself have found in Europe, where in Europe populism is associated to economic decline and in uh, decline in industrial employment, in the US is not the people that lose out financially or the areas that lose out financially, but the areas that lose employment and population, the areas that have no future that are moving towards Trump. And then the final one 
is what about change over time? And the question is, is this just a reaction to the crisis, the two, not the current uh, coronavirus crisis, but the 20, 2008 uh, Great Recession and the years of uh, difficulty that followed that were less important in the US than in Europe. What we find is that this is not just that, that the crisis might have been the trigger, but in reality, this is something that has been brewing for a long time. When we start controlling for declines since the 1970s or the 1980s, the 1990s, the 2000s and uh, 2010s, it doesn't matter how long you look, employment decline and population decline are always connected to a higher Trump uh, the bigger the decline and the stronger the decline in more recent times, the stronger the connection. But nevertheless, this is an enduring process. By contrast, declining wages and in earnings are not connected in any way with a bigger shift to the vote for Trump. So let me just conclude, and I think I probably have uh, about two more minutes uh, on this. So what are the conclusions? We need to take a stock. That this is a phenomenon that uh, maybe we can think that the... Trump vote and the election of Donald Trump in 2006 was a one-off. But the discontent that lies under the vote for an outsider, for a candidate that uh, would have been deemed unelectable by any political analyst just six months or eight months or a year before the election, uh, is rooted in a deep discontent that is linked to long-term economic and demographic decline in places where you still have got a strong sense of belonging, a strong sense of participation in uh, declining communities. So is this long-term economic and demographic decline of the tightly knit American community of midtown America and rural areas that have, that drove the swing to Trump and seems to be driving the rise of anti-system voting and populism in the case of the US? And this is created a malaise that goes by, uh, well beyond the recent crisis and is deeply rooted in time and is manifesting at the moment in the ballot box. These areas that for long have been declined as rust belts, as rednecks uh, states, as flyover states are saying, well, if we're losing out from a system that we consider is no longer fair, they are becoming angry, they are becoming resentful, and they are venting their anger at the ballot box and voting for someone that, since we don't have a future, we're going to show how it feels not to have a future that is probably going to shake the tree and shake it at big time. So what I would say is that uh, in contrast to what was predicted by Putnam, these communities are not no longer bowling alone. It's not that they have lost um, uh, uh, their community spirit. Their community spirit uh, remains, but they have decided to play with a different partner, a partner that's an outsider, and rather than bowling alone, they are now golfing with Trump. And probably we have to be careful because although now the polls are putting Joe Biden uh, on a comfortable lead, this is a deep-rooted uh, malaise that uh, runs deep. And uh, maybe many of these communities would continue to bowl or to play golf or to play ball with anyone that pays attention to the plight 
and that promises to reverse what have been now decades of neglect and perceived disdain. So it's difficult to make predictions at the moment, but uh, what we have to take into account is that given the electoral system in the US, although it seems unlikely at the moment, uh, we will need to hold a, a, our breath until uh, the election night to see what the outcome of the election is. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Andres. Thanks, uh, excellent timekeeping uh, as well, but thanks for a very interesting and very clear uh, argument. We already received some uh, questions uh, from the, through the Q&A function on Zoom. So before I pass the floor to our discussions, let me uh, just briefly announce to the audience that you can indeed use the Q&A icon or button at the bottom of your screen to type your, uh, your questions, and then we'll try to... Um, somehow aggregate them and pass them on to the speakers uh, for their comments uh, and answers. But please, uh, if I can, uh, if you can identify yourselves, obviously your, your name, but also some affiliation so that we know uh, also what's the context of your question, uh, if you know. Uh, continue asking your questions, but we will go to a Q&A after uh, the comments by our two discussants. So first in our discussants is Professor Dimitris Keridis. Dimitri. Okay. Can you hear me, Vasilis? Thank you. Um, I think this was fascinating and it made me feel nostalgic of academia now that I have moved uh, to uh, politics. And uh, I thank uh, Andres for this wonderful expose. Very, very useful. Um, and it proves the importance of this uh, dialogue between uh, academia and serious research on the one hand and politics uh, on the other. And we have both, uh, we can both benefit from that uh, link. Uh, I am particularly honored to be with you uh, this evening. Um, LSE's uh, Hellenic Observatory uh, has done marvels over the years in uh, serious research and uh, uh, serious and well-attended events. And I'm very happy and honored to be part of uh, one of them once more. And of course, to um, discuss um, what is a very important contribution by a professor who is well known with uh, an enormous publishing record behind him and a very gifted teacher, as I hear, from my own assistant in the office who was his student at LSE and now he has proven once more uh, those gifts. And of course, with my friend Adigoni, uh, who I've known uh, for a long time uh, and we are colleagues together at Pandion uh, that we will have the chance to discuss. Now, let me go directly into uh, the juice of uh, uh, the matter and uh, um, let me start uh, with the, uh, I have three, four points. My first point has to do with the Trump effect. Uh, obviously, there is a Trump swing compared to uh, Mitt Romney, who uh, represented, in a sense, uh, the old school uh, Republican compared to Donald Trump's uh, uh, new age, new right, populist and systemic uh, uh, right. Uh, and so the contrast between the two, 2012-2016 uh, elections is stark and allow us to uh, make some conclusions. But this Trump swing that gave Trump the victory was obviously exaggerated, magnified, by a particular institution called the Electoral College. Uh, 
um, the extreme version of a very majoritarian electoral law, according to which the losses for the Democrats in those key swing states of Michigan and the rest were not compensated by the rise in Hillary Clinton's vote elsewhere. Um, those states might be losing populations, as uh, Andres said, but they did not... Uh, Uh, um, they did not necessarily lose, uh, uh, and there was a swing, but they did not necessarily lose the uh, political weight um, uh, they have in, uh, 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 in America. And this goes both for the Senate and for the uh, presidential uh, uh, vote. Uh, it has been calculated that the Democrats uh, have won uh, the Senate uh, overall, if one can calculate it this way, by 15 million votes. And nevertheless, they, have, they are in minority. And of course, Donald Trump lost the popular vote by more than 3 million and nevertheless managed to win uh, uh, the election precisely because this Rust Belt has swung by a few uh, here and there. And... Um, This swing was exaggerated, magnified, overrepresented um, as a result in the Electoral College. This is my um, argument. And in that sense, um, in continental Europe, we are a little more secure because of the lack of this particular majoritarian uh, uh, system uh, as compared uh, to the U.S., The second point has to do with the threat to democracy, which is very debated if there is an actual threat. Um, there are those who might say that this uh, uh, populist uh, uh, stimulus uh, has underlined the fact that politics matter, has increased interest in politics, We don't take politics for granted as something that uh, um, is not uh, affecting us, but it does have serious consequences for our everyday life, including the coronavirus. And so we are more mobilized, more motivated to participate. And in fact, there has been a, rising in, a rise in participation, in vote participation. Uh, here and there, which is important to, uh, uh, to keep in mind. So as far as political participation, uh, we don't see a threat rather than an amelioration. The second point about the threat to democracy is that a few scholars make the distinction between East and West, and they say that this populist challenge might be threatening in the Eastern democracies of Eastern Europe, places where, like Hungary, where institutions are weak, whereas and democracy can be hijacked uh, with uh, constitutional changes and so on, uh, as uh, introduced by Viktor Orban, but not in the well-entrenched, uh, consolidated, mature, advanced democracies of the West, where institutions can withstand this periodic uh, waves of uh, populism. Obviously, this is uh, an open debate. Um, and judging from uh, the alarm alarmist uh, reporting from uh, uh, the U.S. serious press, one cannot uh, be so certain and so kind of uh, um, relaxed. Uh, and already there are many, many clouds uh, gathering 
over the forthcoming American elections with the president uh, not even uh, um, uh, declaring that he will uh, concede. So it, is, it remains to be seen how much of a threat uh, this whole uh, thing uh, is. Now, the serious research that uh, uh, was presented here uh, to us uh, speak about, speaks about one side of the equation. I might, if I were to be an economist, I am not, uh, call it the supply side, the structural side uh, of uh, politics. But obviously, this is only one side of a much more complicated picture, and one has to ha must have to have in mind the other side um, uh, and other uh, things happening, uh, which have to do and have been pointed out by scholars, other scholars, much more uh, um, uh, knowledgeable and, uh, um, and into this than myself, has to do with um, uh, cultural shifts, um, the rise of the internet, the way that we get our news today in a much more decentralized uh, way, the collapse of uh, respect for authority and for uh, experts' opinion, um, and everything that has been changing the last 5, 10, 15 years, very recently, if one considers that Facebook only started in 2005, uh, uh, only 15 years ago, and we have not yet been able to fully grasp what these cultural shifts the, uh, uh, have meant uh, for our politics. And finally, there is obviously, apart from the supply or the demand side of politics, the structural and uh, 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 other factors, um, Obviously, there is the responsibility of politics and politicians, uh, and um, nothing is predetermined. And so uh, it depends on who the counter-candidate is and what the counter-message is and what we politicians do. The first, I would say, and I'm uh, wrapping up, is that all this has to do, uh, in a sense, with a, a bigger topic, which, if I were to be very brief, I would summarize it as the collapse of the left. The collapse of the left, the decline of the left, the center-left, the left in Europe, in America, uh, that has suddenly allowed for the new right, extreme right, hard right, populist right, to hijack and to uh, channel and to capitalize on the uh, social discontent of the quote-unquote, as Hillary Clinton um, uh, famously and uh, very, very costly called the deplorables, the deplorables. So the deplorables, the unprivileged, the, uh, those um, um, without, um, um, the, with all the problems, uh, used to uh, vote for uh, the left. And this Rust Belt uh, area of the U.S., the industrial heartland of the United States, places like Michigan, where the uh, heart of the Democratic Party, of unionized labor, 
um, and, and, and that collapse of the left has made that shift to the uh, strong right uh, uh, so much more prominent. And then obviously there are other, other... Uh, I, uh, if you can wrap up... Uh, yes. Um, yeah. Thanks. Other responsibilities of politicians, um, um, the crisis of the um, uh, uh, cent centrist um, uh, uh, politics of Blair and uh, Clinton, Iraq, uh, the debacle of 2008, and so on and so forth, that have allowed an opening for people like uh, uh, Trump uh, to move in. So I would say um, there is this effect that uh, Andres has spoken about. It has been exaggerated by the Electoral College. Um, it has been affected by cultural shifts and it has to do with uh, our responsibility as politicians as well. Thank you. Thank you, Dimitri. These are some uh, excellent comments. I'll let uh, Andres respond to them after, after uh, our second uh, discussion uh, and then we'll open to, to the Q&A. Andigoni, the floor is yours. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, since I'm no longer a member of parliament, I shall skip all the niceties. Uh, but thank you, Andre, very much for the stimulating um, uh, talk. Because uh, the good thing is that it gives us uh, food for thought. And um, I'm not going to pretend that I know very well the situation in the US. But I can tell you that from the point of view of where I'm standing, as a citizen of Greece, as a citizen of Europe, as a citizen of Southern Europe, It, it seems to me very, very important to find, um, to have a clearer picture and think hard about populism, about um, uh, inequalities, um, about economic decline and about uh, lack of trust or how to build trust. So in a sense, we in Greece um, are a very good um, audience or at least group of people to discuss these things because uh, we have been champions both in demographic decline and in economic decline and over the long term. So somehow we should uh, be able, since we've been there, to uh, hypothesize what the next steps could be. Uh, To cut a long story short, I would like to suggest that the link between populism and um, economic uh, uh, decline and inequalities, uh, but mainly economic decline, long-term decline, goes both ways. I see the point that uh, long-term uh, areas in long-term economic decline and demographic decline are prone to turn to populism, but we have an example in Greece where populism somehow arrested um, rates of growth, and I'm going to talk about it immediately later. The second point I would like to make is that populism is contagious in the sense that uh, it definitely does not belong only to the far right, and I, I would I would like to bring the discussion of populism in its broader sense because it characterizes very well um, other ideologies apart from the uh, 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 extreme uh, right. And the second is that it's not only about populism vis-a-vis uh, -vis trying to, to bridge the, the, the economic inequalities. It's populism also trying to throw stones to migrants and refugees. I mean, it is, it is also another 
uh, instance of, of populism. And so I would like to remind um, most of the speakers who are of a certain age that in the mid-70s, immediately after the dictatorship in Greece, we had um, we saw the meteoric in, um, uh, uh, rise of PASOK, um, a highly populist and very successful party whose main narrative was to include everybody into the uh, the, the project of development. Uh, I, I remember very clearly the non-privileged people, everybody could fit into this category. And secondly, it was very uh, aggressively um, nihilistic in terms of uh, external policy. I, I wish to remind you the plea to sink the Turkish ship Hora, uh, all the narrative against uh, the European community, NATO and stuff. Of course, when PASOK came to power, it moderated uh, part of the narrative. But in, on the issue of uh, giving injections of um, uh, of transfers of uh, of money transfers to to the people who were um, definitely not hubs and some of the hubs also it 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 somehow um, addressed the the issues that supposedly um, can bring about uh, an increase in populism. The, the problem is, of course, that like every other populist party, PASOK was very um, uninterested as to where the money came from. So the money came from borrowing, internal and external. It came from European community funds, which were des designed for other purposes. And it also came from printing money and creating inflation. I'm saying this because I want to say that this was a populist um, instance, which we very rarely remember now, because first of all, we think that uh, populism, as we talk about it now, is about Orban and 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 um, and um, uh, Trump, and not about other uh, nicer people. And the second is because I think that it has instilled some behaviors in our political system, namely the, the, the idea that while in opposition, it is a good thing to be a populist in order to get into the office. And as soon as you get become a government, you moderate your, um, um, your narrative and you pass the torch of populist critique and um, outbursts to the other party who is in the, the opposition. We saw this happening uh, between um, uh, PASOK and uh, Nea Demokratia, between Nea Demokratia and Syriza, between Syriza and Nea Demokratia now. So they, they pass the torch and it is somehow uh, tolerated that as long as you are um, as long as you are seriously playing the political democratic um, game you need to become populist uh, before the elections in order to be elected in order to do the good things now this has some very problematic aspects and I want to uh, ring the bell um, because I think this is an alarming a silently alarming problem the thing is that, uh, of course, populists uh, somehow are, um, uh, they, they fall on the, they, they are inhibited by the 
by budget constraints and they cannot uh, distribute money a volonté. This happens when you are Greece or when you are a European country. It does not happen, of course, in the US where you have your dollar and it's a different story. But I happen to speak on behalf of this part of the world. And as soon as uh, any party, regardless of whether it, it is supposedly populist or not, gets into office, it somehow manages to steer the, the ship of the, of the economy and the politics uh, within, broadly within the European um, roadmap. But this has some collateral damage. First of all, uh, the, I, the, the, the need to make reforms in, econo in the economy always comes as a hard landing that nobody wants and of course not even the politicians who propose them because they are made to make them so nobody really thinks that reform is in any meaningful sense necessary the other thing is that while losing the battle of the redistribution because there is no money left the greek big parties um make concessions to the other aspects of anger of their clientele and this is anger versus uh, refugees, anger versus uh, immigrants, anger versus people who are different from themselves. And I think this is a very poisonous story that has to be told somehow. So populism is not only about far right. It is not only about um, uh, trust. It is mainly about... Um, the, it is a very contagious game which uh, moves, migrates across parties and it migrates across policy areas, economics, but also um, uh, foreign policy. Our most recent uh, sad example is the Prespes um, uh, agreement, but there are others. And the idea that it doesn't matter, it is a vehicle for getting uh, into office, and it doesn't matter if you are a nice guy, you can somehow play with populism, uh, use it, and then do your own job. This is not happening, and in the end, all parties, all democratic parties will end up doing populists. Uh, the, the populists' job, and I am very alarmed with this idea. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Digoni. That's uh, quite a pessimistic uh, race to the bottom uh, uh, note. But, uh, Andres, I will give you some time to respond to some of the points. I don't know if you need me to summarize uh, uh, the points. It's good? Okay, so I will, I will give you a few minutes and then we'll pass it on to the floor for Q&As. Thank you very much. Uh... Vasilis, and in the interest of time, I'll, I'll just, uh, it's better to, for me to go directly. And thank you very much, Dimitris and Antigone, for a set of very, very interesting and uh, incisive comments that I think uh, complement very well, uh, not just what's happening in the US, but also the situation that we are all undergoing in many parts of the developed world. Let me just start with uh, some ideas. Uh, so Dimitris highlighted uh, the Electoral College creates enormous distortions in, uh, in the US. Uh, Hillary Clinton won the, electro won the vote, the popular vote by more than 3 million. Uh, but uh, because uh, Trump won the key states in this electoral college, he secured the presidency. 
business system that has been in place for a long time and is going to be almost uh, impossible to reform. Uh, when you have that, uh, the state of Wyoming or Alaska, the uh, state of Wyoming with six, less than 600,000 people, uh, Alaska 700,000, North Dakota 760,000, Rhode Island or Delaware with 1 million, they both, they all have two senators. And that's the same as California with 40 million or Texas with 29 million. Then you have that there's a system that distorts reality at big time and in a certain way, it distorts the sovereignty of the electorate. Having said that, it's a system that has been in place and hasn't changed for a long time, and all candidates knew about it and have known for, uh, for some time. So the fact that Hillary Clinton, that spent significant amount of time, did not manage to sway a single of those states that matter, Florida, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, or Wisconsin, it tells, speaks volumes about the deep-seated uh, discontent there and the need to have, in a certain way, a more, let's say, territorially integrated uh, uh, level of intervention in certain parts of the country that for many years, and you mentioned the, the word deplorables that was actually put together, put forward by uh, Hillary Clinton, have been regarded as people living in places that no longer count, that they don't matter. Uh, this is something that needs to be addressed. And is something that, because the electoral system is unlikely to change, would requ require significant investment and significant uh, capacity to change this long-term decline than what has been done until now. And let's remember that the US is the country, one of the countries in the world with Australia and New Zealand, where territorial disparities are the lowest. They are far more pronounced in a country like Greece or in a country like Spain or in the UK, which at the moment seems to be the country in Europe with the highest level of territorial uh, inequality. On the question about this division between East and West, I would tend to agree. Um, yes, probably institutions and democratic institutions are far stronger in the West than they are in the East. And they can probably withstand a Donald Trump, or I'm going to be controversial here, or a Boris Johnson, or they can withstand uh, perhaps a Salvini uh, as prime minister of, of Italy. But nevertheless, the risk is there. It's not me that put the idea that democracy is at risk. When you read what the Supreme, the British Supreme Court said last year, when Parliament was prorogued and it deemed, uh, the Supreme Court deemed that uh, the prorogation of Parliament was unlawful, the words that were used was that it had stretched democracy to the limits. And this in the country, the UK, that is considered by many as the beacon of democracy. It's also the situation where if we have a president, sitting president of the US, saying that he will abide by the decision of Americans at the election, depending on whether it suits him or not, more or less, as he said just yesterday, that is pushing democracy to the limit in many ways. So yes, it's true that our democratic institutions are strong, but they are becoming far more fragile than they ever uh, were. And um, 
Also, the question of uh, the robustness of institutions. We have seen a lot of institutions already collapse. Uh, political parties, well-established political parties, you might say, well, maybe they needed to collapse. But in countries like France, in Italy, in Belgium, to a certain extent, in the case of Greece, the traditional party system that was, had been established and had been in place for quite some time has disappeared. And what, is being, what it is being replaced by is no longer, I would say, and this is, of course, subject to debate, a cleavage that is left-right, mm. but is a far more dangerous uh, cleavage is, are you in favor of the system or you're, are you against the system? And this is where I, I link to Antigone's uh, sort of comments on the question of what are the risks of being in, in, uh, against the system? And uh, what Antigone was saying is that there's a link between populism and decline, and this goes both ways, that uh, decline can lead to populism or populism can lead to decline. It's something that I would argue in the case of Europe and the US, we still have not seen because we haven't had populist leaders in, in, in government for a long time to see whether it leads to decline. But we need to look at where it has happened. If you are Argentinian, you have been suffering populist leaders for the best of 30 years. For, sorry, not the best of 30 years, since the 1930s, almost a century. And Argentina in 1920s was among the richest countries in the world and look at where it is now. Thailand, that was the uh, poster child of the IMF, the fastest growing Southeast Asian economy until the 1990s, but with huge territorial inequalities, they, the largest territorial inequalities in the world for the countries for which we got data, has been since the mid-1990s in a tug of war between pop, a populist candidates and a, an elite in Bangkok that has transformed a dynamic country into the worst performer in the whole of Southeast Asia. So I think you're right that there's a big risk, and we are in the West, in Europe and the US, we might undergo this risk. Because in the end, what anti-system and populist candidates are proposing are simple solutions to complex problems that might appeal in the short term, but in the long term are going to generate more significant problems than what we have. Um, I'm going to try to link it uh, to something, and this is where I might become a, a bit more emotional, but we have a system that is in need of reform, and it's in bad need of reform that has, is leaking in many places. But we have a system that across the Western world has generated the biggest level of prosperity, the biggest level of equality, interpersonal equality, and especially in the case of Europe, the longest period of peace that this continent has ever experienced. And uh, throwing that away for something that in all likelihood is going to generate a worse outcome is something that we need to consider. Because as I said, the problem with this, and you highlighted it very well, Antigone, of populism is that it doesn't offer right solutions and it creates enemies everywhere. Because I think there, there's a holy trinity of populists that, that very often link the right and the left. The holy trinity of populism is that you try to find enemies wherever they are. You're trying to find scapegoats wherever they are. And the first scapegoat is the elites. The problem is who are the elites? And very often for these populist parties, left and right, is anyone who doesn't think like us. The second scapegoat, and this is important, 
is anyone who is a outside our boundaries. It might be the case in the case of Europe, the European Union that is not delivering. In the case of the US, you have to pick a fight with whoever, with China, for example. And then the third one, which is the one that is probably more of a right-wing populism than a left-wing populism is the one you highlighted, which is the one, those scapegoats, the people who are different from us, the migrants, uh, the people of a different race, uh, the refugees that are uh, people that can be picked on in order to get the quick vote, despite the fact that you might be stoking uh, tensions. So as I said, and I'm going to finish here, we have a system that needs, it's in bad need of reform, but probably what is being put in the horizon now as an alternative is a far worse alternative than trying to actually, through adequate public policy, address the problems that have led to uh, the decline of the system and to where we are right now. Right. Thank you, Andres. I am afraid I won't give the, the opportunity for the discussions to counter, uh, discuss Andres' responses. Um, I want to move on to uh, questions from uh, the audience. I'm, I think I'm okay in trying to aggregate some of the questions. Let me first say that it's wonderful to see uh, many people from many parts of the world, including some good colleagues at the University of Groningen, uh, but also colleagues, former students in Greece, uh, in the UK, somebody in Spain, but also somebody from uh, Nepal, I think. Uh, so quite an international uh, audience. I want to start address by bringing some questions, two sets of questions uh, from the audience. One concerns um, the theoretical explanation of your model. So Petros Kaliotis, a graduate from Queen Mary University here in London, says, why is social capital decline uh, lead, leading to a decline in the Trump margin and not the opposite? So if you want, what is the, your, your explanation of this, uh, if you want, surprising uh, effect? And then link to that, uh, if I can find another question, is uh, a question you view, what are the possible theoretical explanations for stronger human capital in decline areas to be a driver for populist voting? So why is, uh, I, but I think the reference is here to social capital rather than... Social capital rather than yes, human capital. Yeah, yes. Yes. Uh, the question is human capital, but I think it is the social capital. So one is about the theoretical mechanism by these two, uh, uh, Javier Torero, uh, analysis student, uh, and uh, Scaliotis from Queen Mary. And then the other set of questions I want to put to you, uh, Andres, is by Kalivas, Stefanos Kalivas, I think, uh, uh, which uh, um, is more about uh, why the decline, the population decline uh, in, in these areas, as you, you, men you mentioned, the, the, you know, the events of the places that don't matter, why did it lead to populism and didn't lead to a higher demand for good policies? Uh, the question, I think, by Stefanos Kalivas is a bit more optimistic, saying, will we reach a time where uh, the areas of decline, the backward states, would switch to demanding sound policy plans over populism, over populist rhetoric? And similarly, I think, uh, Babu Ali asked the same question, uh, uh, not the same question, but asked the question of why did it lead to populism and not to the support for the left, for socialism and Bernie Sanders, uh, uh, why then populism and not a reclaim of the left? I hope these questions are grouped sufficiently well. Andres, I'll pass the floor to you. Okay. Fine. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you very much to all the people making questions uh, about the theoretical explanation of why uh, strong social capital 
seems to be connected to populism and not the opposite as Putnam. Uh, here, I'm op open to suggestions. I'm going to put on my theory, but it's something that is ongoing. And uh, I think this is, is a phenomenon that requires significant uh, analysis. But my explanation is that when you have a really fragmented society, when you have very strong social capital, there's low civic engagement, you don't see, you don't participate with your neighbors, you don't engage with your neighbors, then your vote is mainly decided on other types of channels. It might be that these channels re don't reflect the type of definition of social capital that was put forward by uh, Putnam that was mainly through association of individuals. And maybe people are associating online rather than associating like we are right now in person. But what I'll, I'll highlight is that when you have a strong social capital, when you have a strong civic participation, when you have a strong civic uh, sense of community in communities that have been losing out, once once decided, one person, one leader or part of the group or a certain part of the group decides that they're going to switch, that they have had enough of mainstream candidates uh, like uh, Dimitris was saying, uh, the idea of uh, we don't want any more Mitt Romneys, we want someone who's going to finally shake the tree, then the whole community is going to shift and you're going to see a massive shift happening in a relatively short amount of time. And this might be happening in the Rust Belts in the US, but it might be also happening in the Red Wall in, uh, in the case of uh, the UK. It might be happening or it is happening in the Northeast of France in parts of southern France, southeastern France, it's happening in still relatively rich but long-term declining communities of the north of Italy. Uh, the areas in Lombardia outside uh, uh, Milan or uh, many of the traditional small town uh, rural areas of Veneto that have moved in big numbers to the Lega. Nevertheless, uh, there would be a need to do a much more fine-tuned research in order to get the the, um, the actual mechanisms. I think that the, the book I like the most about uh, this type of work is the book that was uh, written by Kathy Kramer uh, on, uh, I think it was 2015 or 2016, on the case of Wisconsin called the uh, Politics of Resentment. And this idea that you have groups that feel abandoned and therefore become resentful and decide that they are going to uh, at least uh, show and give the elite, whoever they are, a bloody nose. Uh, second is, um, why is population decline and economic decline, so decline in general, not leading for a good demand of good uh, policies and then shift into populism? I'm not saying it's not leading for a good demand for good pop uh, policies, sorry. They might have been demanding policies for quite some time, but their plights have not been heard. In fact, uh, I still remember when I was uh, a young lad in Spain, and many of the areas that were, were seeing industrial decline, people were coming out in droves saying, the shipyard is closing. What we want is jobs, and we want real jobs. And you could see banners saying, we don't want to become uh, waiters, we don't want to become civil servants. Nothing against civil servants. I am, after all, a civil servant. But that's what they wanted. What has been the reaction by most European societies, and I'm going to talk about the US later on, but now in Europe, has been to try to subsidize these places through transfers, through 
in a way, inflating public employment through big white elephants in terms of investment that look shiny, big motorways, for example, in the short term, but in the long term, don't bring any sort of impact for these places. And this can give you some uh, traction for a short period of time. But when you see one party coming into office and then another party and then another party and the same policies repeated over and over again, regardless of whether the party in office is a left-wing or right-wing party, at a certain point you said, that's enough. We no longer count, but we're going to show them that we count. In the United States, the problem is that very little has been done. Whereas in Europe, there was some transfers and there were uh, some sort of activity. In the US, they were led to rot. And the idea was, why? These people should move. So if Ohio is declining, Youngstown in Ohio is declining, or if uh, parts of Pennsylvania and Michigan are losing out, if Allentown in uh, Pennsylvania is declining, these people should move where there's opportunity. The problem is many of these people cannot move because either they haven't got the skills or they haven't got the capacity or they haven't got the will because they have their families, they have their social networks, they, have their, uh, they are rooted in the, in the, in the places of uh, where they were born and where they have lived. So in that respect, they're saying, well, if we have no future, we are not going to be the only ones that are going to do it. And why support for populists and support for the left? I made a clear distinction. They are pro-system and anti-system parties. And many of those people that feel disenfranchised, they can be in rural declining towns or they can be in, in cities. They are opting for anti-system parties. And this can be of the right and the left. In general, what we're seeing is that the shift to the right has happened outside the big cities and with, uh, in places that have been declining and in places that have been aging in general. The shift to the anti-system left-wing populism is happening normally in younger groups within the cities. Uh, the issue is that perhaps at a certain point they might uh, merge. Uh, very often right-wing populism voters come from the right, left-wing populism uh, voters come from the left, but we have seen in the past in many parts uh, of, of Europe, mainly in France, a radical shift from uh, stream left uh, communist parties and uh, parties that emerged from the former communist party towards the former Front National. So uh, very often the streams can at a certain point become joined in one way. All right, uh, we're quite running out of time, but I want to bring another set of, uh, uh, of questions on this. Um, one by Bernard Casey, uh, uh, former uh, colleague and uh, good friend, probably still a, uh, a colleague, but now in Frankfurt. To what extent have you compared your work to that of uh, Anne Case and Angus Deaton? Um, to whom he listened yesterday, but I think address, uh, the, the argument is about excess death rates, I think, for white uh, uh, middle, so white uh, population without a college degree. And there's another question by Haider, uh, I don't uh, uh, have the, the affiliation here, who says also what is the role of uh, education in the model? So maybe you can combine these things, so the, the white voters without education that are uh, or the areas with that uh, uh, marginal population that uh, support uh, uh, now Trump. So that would be one question. 
Another set of uh, questions would be in relation to uh, whether other factors play a role. Uh, a couple of people, uh, I have the names Korpakis and Delis, have uh, uh, brought in uh, uh, Dmitry Korpakis from uh, formerly of the European Commission in Brussels. Uh, to what extent uh, globalization has played a role uh, in, the, uh, in the whole kind of decline of industrial uh, areas. But also another question by um, Mr. Periklis Proinos and Elise Almunus, which uh, links it to... Uh, no, it's not very clear. No, sorry, which links it to the the decline in power of the U.S. in the international arena, so the, the political weight of 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 the U.S. Uh, internationally, and whether that explains the the rise of populist uh, politicians in the U.S. more more so than uh, other things. So the argument by Case and Titon, middle class and education, uh, and also uh, uh, bigger processes, globalization, of course, but also international, um, the power of the U.S. in the international arena. Okay, thank you very much, and thank you very much for, for, for the questions. Um, how I made a connection between my analysis and the work of Case and Deaton that has, uh, I mean, I became aware of it more recently on excess death, death rates, uh, the, the short answer is no, but I'm just going to try to link it. I think they're all part of the same, and I'm going to link it to education. Uh, when you have uh, places that have been declining for in the long run, and you have been losing employment, uh, you see that uh, the people that remain are very often the people that cannot move. Uh, the people that uh, are dynamic, that have got the biggest capacity, that uh, have got the highest level of better performance in high school, they move to college and then they move somewhere else. And the people that uh, have got lower levels of education stay in environments where you see uh, there are less jobs available, there's a bigger level of despair, and that leads to a lot of factors like, for example, substance abuse, alcohol abuse, uh, that are far stronger among these groups than they were uh, in the past in what were uh, strong uh, areas with uh, social capital. And uh, that is also link, linked in a, in a way to issues like uh, suicide, but also uh, early deaths uh, as a result of uh, substance dependency and uh, alcohol. So in fact, they are in, in uh, parts of the same coin. When you feel that you have no future, that you are stuck in a place where you cannot move or where even if you don't want to move, there is there are no opportunities, you're going to be feeling resentful and being unhappy uh, as a result is one factor behind early days, and also behind the reaction at the ballot box. Um, uh, on the question by Dimitri Korpakis, uh, thank you very much, uh, Dimitri. Uh, whether globalization has, has played a role, I think it has played a role, and uh, it has played an important role. Uh, the competition, especially these were, many of these were all industrial areas that have been declined, that's why they're called, uh, have been declining, they have not been able to withstand the competition uh, from uh, cheaper and very often same quality or higher quality produced from elsewhere in the world. And mainly this is what uh, people like David Otto call the, the China effect from places like China, but uh, anywhere else in the world where they are produced are the ones that are reacting. Uh, having said that, I'm not saying that I'm anti-globalization. In fact, I, I am a strong supporter of globalization. And I think we all win 
globally and uh, within countries as countries in general uh, from greater trade inter uh, interaction integration. Having said that, uh, I do find that uh, globalization strategies very often have failed to factor in who wins and who loses from greater trade integration and where these people are located. And very often you see that uh, a never dwindling elite or group, I don't want to use the word elite, uh, of individuals is reaping the lion's share. They are very often located uh, in the most dynamic areas, that is the big cities or near the big cities, where swaths of territory, uh, let's say in the north of Italy, in the north of France, in the north of England, in the Rust Belt in the US, uh, have been losing out and have been losing out from this uh, uh, for a long time. So I, we need trade integration, but this trade integration has to be sensitive to who wins and who loses and where these people are located. So it has to have a territorial dimension included. And then the question of uh, whether the decline in, uh, in the political arena and the decline of power of the US uh, is, is causing this reaction. I think it, it's also a reaction that is important. Uh, economic causes are not just the only causes behind the rise of anti-system voting. There are a lot of uh, there's a lot of work on on identity and psychology, etc., and uh, the cultural factors. The idea that uh, the UK was one of the biggest powers, France was a great power, the US is still the greatest power, but is losing seems to be less capable of shaping the way the wor uh, world is is seen and perceived and uh, the way the world works is uh, clearly a factor behind uh, the rise of populism. The question is, why is this concentrated in certain parts of the country and not in others? And that's where I think this long-term economic decline and population decline factor plays a fundamental role that it wouldn't, uh, that uh, doesn't pan out or doesn't uh, appear in, in the most dynamic places. I think we uh, running a bit out of time, so like uh, I cannot obviously take all all the questions that are uh, asked, but I'll uh, put a last round uh, to you, Andres. Uh, um, so two again, two sets of questions. One is uh, about the comparability of your results uh, for the case of Europe. Uh, a couple of people have asked that. Pericles Posidonos, a former student of ours, actually. Uh, uh, to what extent the results translate to the case of Europe? And another question related to that is uh, that we know that inequalities seem to have played a role in the case of Europe. Well, that's, I, I guess, an open question. Uh, how can we explain that they don't, in your analysis, they don't seem to play such a role in the um, US? I think interpersonal inequalities is the reference. So this is, uh, and also uh, how, the, the, how the results translate also to your conclusions to the case of Brexit, of the Leave uh, vote in the UK. Another question, perhaps more uh, closing, uh, is a couple of people have asked if uh, populism is bad and why, why are we concerned with populism? And there's also a question by Peter Aspden uh, uh, from the Financial Times. I, I think where he says, what is the difference between the a populist and a popular policy, is there a moral dimension to this distinction? So uh, maybe I will leave also this question uh, to, after you answer the address, to allow our uh, discussions to, to very quickly uh, also say a few words about that. Is populism bad? Um, what is the distinction with popular and populist? Uh, Andres, the floor back to you. 
Okay. Um, comparability of the results to, uh, to Europe. Uh, I, I think the, the results, are, if you're interested in this, uh, there's a paper called The Geography of EU Discontent, which was written by Louis Dijkstra, Hugo Pullman and myself, and was published this year, in which we do the same analysis. And in fact, what we find is that many of the factors like uh, density, levels of education, uh, aging, uh, in the case of Europe, is not race, uh, but uh, other factors are very similar in terms of what's happening in the U.S. and in and, uh, and in uh, in Europe. Um, in terms of economic decline, they both play an important role. I think that is one of the key roles. So long-term economic decline uh, drives populism and anti-system voting in Europe, as it does in the U.S., although the factors differ. In the U.S., is uh, population decline and employment decline in Europe is declining GDP and declining industrial output and industrial employment more than any other type of employment decline. So why is that? Possibly because we have a bigger safety net in Europe, in which, uh, whereas in the US until very recently, and there are now calls by uh, people with no... Uh, uh, no risk of being called socialists like Ed Glaser or uh, Larry Summers, to subsidize these places. In Europe, we have been doing this for the last 50, 60 years. And that has prevented the free fall that has been seen in many of the American areas. So it's a different type of decline that uh, seems to be behind the rise of populism and anti-system voting in Europe and in the US. On the, the uh, compatibility of the results in terms of interpersonal inequalities and the idea that interpersonal inequalities are driving the rise of populism in Europe, I wish I had the data. I mean, I, I, I cannot say that that's the case because that's something, I'd, at least from a territorial perspective, we don't have data on interpersonal inequalities at a uh, subnational level in, in Europe. So uh, it's, uh, it's very difficult at the moment to establish whether that, that, is, that is the case. We have better data in the case of the US. Having said that, I, I do think that uh, probably the phenomenon at the moment is not that different. In fact, I would... If you were to push me, I would say that interpersonal inequalities are driving the rise of, um, and this happened within mainly regions, not across regions. So they would be within cities, are driving the rise of left-wing populism that, rather than right-wing populism at the moment, which is much more linked to, uh, to uh, long-term economic decline. But this is something that needs to be studied and needs to be studied uh, more. And then on the final question of whether what is populist and what is uh, popular uh, here? What is a popular policy? Well, a popular policy, it's very difficult for me to say, and I would probably refer to the definition of populism by Kazmuda. But for me, a popular policy would be one that manages to generate welfare for all. Uh, in the end, a populist policy would be uh, one that stokes confrontation to benefit a particular group within society that is actually supporting that option vis-a-vis -vis what would be in the end the great majority of the population and therefore end up and end up with a suboptimal result and with a lower uh, welfare returns from that policy overall. Uh, uh, thank you Andres. Uh, Adigoni would you like to add something on this question about popular and populist? Yeah. Gladly. Okay, it's a, it's a very, of course, it's a question that we could spend uh, weeks discussing, but to me, populism is appalling because it is, um, it is about 
closed uh, systems of uh, ideas. It is about anger. It is about hostility to change. It is about um, a complete um, pa passivity vis-a-vis -vis, uh, building your own life. And I think this is terribly poisonous. And this is why I think that politicians should never, ever appeal to this kind of instincts that keep people stuck uh, in the mud and don't let them uh, develop their their capabilities. That's it. Admittedly, we, we're just running out of time, but if you can take 20 seconds to give your <laughs> take on that. <laughs> there is so much uh, that can be said. I think uh, the importance of the paper and address work is to highlight uh, that uh, um, there is some serious causes, some serious uh, base for uh, the Trump phenomenon that is often dismissed uh, as uh, ephemeral, as a usurper uh, by the serious press. And I think it highlights uh, the need uh, to go down and uh, do the research and uh, understand uh, exactly the social causes uh, that give rise uh, to this uh, phenomenon. Uh, that's point number one. Point number two, obviously, uh, there are so many interconnections that one can draw. The rise of China and the decline of the Rust Belt and of certain areas in the West that depended on uh, industry and trade and have been so negatively affected and have led to that uh, decline uh, in population and uh, immigration. Very important. These connections between in and out of uh, borders. Obviously, the right wing has been... I think we have to leave it uh, there. Thank you very much. Uh, let me take the point to thank uh, all the participants, the audience uh, for their questions, uh, and also, of course, uh, to thank uh, our keynote speaker, Andres Rodriguez-Pose, and our two discussions, Dimitris Keridis and Ivoni Liberaki. Thank you for joining this Hellenic Observatory and National Bank of Greece uh, lecture, and we hope to see you all in future events. Thank you very much to our speakers, and good night.